Amen. Amen. And good morning, Sojourn. Am I on? Can you hear me? No? Hello? There we are. All right, cool. Well, hey, yes, uh, thank you, Ernie. And yes, if you have not met me, my name is Sam, and I'm serving here with these students in the young adult ministry. And uh, friends, if you have a copy of God's Word this morning, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. As Ernie said, we are kind of meshing uh, Advent, and but we're, we're, well, we're entering into Advent, but we're kind of combining it with John 12 and 13. So John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8 will be our main text this morning. So you can go ahead and turn there. And in the spirit of one gathering and getting to know each other and meeting someone new, I want to begin with a question this morning. And I want to do something I do with the students a lot. Uh, I want us to engage with one another. I want to invite you to turn to the person next to you or behind you or in front of you. Take about 45 seconds and discuss this question. Who is Jesus to you? How would you describe him? Go 30, 45 seconds. About 20 more seconds. It's a challenge. All right, five seconds. Two, one. All right. And we can bring it back in. I know it is hard how to answer that question in 30 to 45 seconds. But as we have, um, y'all are just like the students, you keep talking, I love it, I love it. Um, as we have been going through the Gospel of John, we have seen uh, repeatedly, I know we talked about this a lot in the men's Bible study, but we have seen repeatedly that many, again and again, people struggle to fully grasp who Jesus is. Some get it a little bit, some get it all the way, but many Many fail to understand who Jesus is. And in a similar way in our world, there are lots of thoughts about who Jesus is. For example, um, some look at Jesus very much like just a friend. If you need any ideas for a holiday gift this year, I help, I'm going to help you out this morning. I found this shirt. Jesus is my homeboy. Someone please buy this for Ernie uh, and me as well. We'll wear it together. Um, some people look at Jesus very much like a friend, which is what this is communicating. Uh, Jesus often gets used in politics a lot of times as a kind of political trump card. When Julie and I were traveling to uh, Tennessee to see family for Thanksgiving, I noticed this billboard in northwest Georgia. Um, Every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord, even the Democrats. To be clear, that is not a political statement from me at all, okay? But I, I saw that and thought, oh, this goes along because whoever made this thinks Jesus is a Republican. Okay. Um, just for the record, I think Jesus would have friends on both sides of the aisle. Okay. But we're going to press on here. Jesus, there are many thoughts about who Jesus is in our life, and he gets used in many ways. Our friends in other religions, our Muslim brothers and sisters, our Buddhist friends largely believe that Jesus was some kind of prophet or wise or enlightened teacher. One of my roommates in college, Ahmed, was a Muslim. He was very adamant that Jesus was a prophet, um, but not God, not God. Um, our other religions would say, like Hinduism, our Hindu friends would agree with us that Jesus, might agree with us that Jesus was a God, but one God among their many gods, not the one true God, as we believe. The point is, the question is, 
Whose arrival are we anticipating this Advent? Is it just a friend? Is it, who is it? Is it God? Is it a person? We were at Thanksgiving with uh, my family, and um, we have a child. We're expecting another one. Uh, Julie's brother, Julie, my wife, her brother, is expect, has three children. And we were just kind of, we were out on the deck one night, and we were just kind of almost lamenting a little bit, like, man, life just feels so, we're just slugging it through every day, trying to get through every day, taking care of kids, doing holidays, doing all of these things. And sometimes it's hard for us in this season specifically to have time to just reflect on who Jesus is and worship him for that. And so what I hope to do this morning is to create some space for us to see who Jesus is and worship him and apply who he is to our lives. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to dive into this text. In this passage, we see a beautiful moment where someone in John's gospel, kind of a rare occurrence in the gospels, but where someone just gets it 100% who Jesus is. A woman named Mary is going to notice, is going to see who Jesus is, and her response is absolutely beautiful. So we're going to dive in. I am a note taker. When there's a sermon, I love to take notes. So if you are a note taker, we're probably going to vibe really well together. Um, I have three points this morning, and so if you want to follow me, they're, here they are. They should appear on the screen. I'll give them here, and then we'll walk through the passage and hit each one. But John is inviting us to do three things in our passage this morning. Number one, John is inviting us to worship our king. Number two, John is inviting us to set aside our sins. And number three, John is inviting us to care for those in need. Again, we will hit all of these as we go through. Beginning with number one, John is inviting us to worship our king. Let's go to our text. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. First couple of verses. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. So for a little bit of context, we are nearing Jesus' crucifixion. The Passover is approaching, so many Jews are making their way to Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way there, and on his way, he stops in Bethany, which should be a familiar place to us. We were in John 11 last Sunday. Bethany is the place where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and the waves of that event are still rippling at this point. We are told uh, that people are coming to Bethany to see Lazarus, and when they are seeing Lazarus, they are believing in Jesus. So in Bethany, Jesus is kind of a local hero. I don't know if there's a local hero in Marietta, but he's, he comes into Bethany, and he's kind of this hero, and so they throw this party for him, and Jesus is there, his disciples are there, Simon the leper is hosting it, someone he healed. Uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, by the way, coolest dinner party ever, right? Like, my goodness, you want to be at that table. Um, they're reclining at the table, they're eating and drinking, then Mary comes in. Verse 3, let's see what Mary does. Mary, therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. What are we to make of this? Not something we see a lot in our, in our day today. I don't know if any of you did that at Thanksgiving. <laughs> Mary has this really expensive nard ointment it's a plant it's a plant imported from india imported remember this is biblical times no amazon for something to be imported it's very expensive it's very valuable verse 5 tells us it's worth 300 denarii which that's a year's wages in that day so adults think of how much you make in a year get that number in your head that's how much this stuff is worth 
And this is likely some kind of family heirloom. It's something that maybe has been passed down to Mary. Maybe it's something she's saving in her life for a rainy day. It's kind of her rainy day fund. And she uses all of it to anoint Jesus' body, to anoint his feet. And further, so that's the first thing we notice. And further, she uses her hair to anoint Jesus' feet. She wipes his feet. She cleans them. She kind of takes on the role of a servant. That's what a servant would do is wash feet. She's taking the role of a servant. She's serving Jesus. She wipes his feet, and she does so with her hair. The hair is significant because Jewish women would rarely unbind their hair in public. It was not something you did normally. So what Mary is doing is incredibly intimate and personal. It is reveals to us this very close relationship between Mary and Jesus. And you can imagine that everyone else in the room, you know, this is in front of everybody, everyone else is um, it's kind of like one of those moments where you're at Thanksgiving dinner and someone says, um, brings up a political point and then someone else says something against it and then everyone else kind of stops and watches what's about to happen. Um, hopefully none of that happened to this, this last week. But uh, you can imagine everyone else in the room is just kind of watching this happen. Like, whoa, what is this that's going on? No, they stopped eating, they stopped drinking, and John, John remembers this moment very, very clearly. He tells us how the house was filled with the smell of the perfume. Like, he can, he just remembers the smell of it. He remembers the moment. Y'all have those sense memories in your life, like you smell something, it takes you back to like a moment in your childhood. This is one of those moments. He remembers Mary doing this. This was a special moment. What is Mary doing? This wasn't some kind of normal ritual of the day. Mary is worshiping. She's worshiping her king, her Christ. The language of anointing in this passage is, is very important, very important. Key servants of God throughout Scripture were anointed. Aaron the high priest was anointed. David the king was anointed. Isaiah the prophet was anointed. And now Jesus is anointed by Mary. Mary, unlike so many others around her, is understanding, has seen that Jesus is the Christ. He is God's Messiah. He is the one, as Daniel, as we read in Daniel, like a son of man. He is the prophet like Moses. He is the priest from Melchizedek. He is the one talked about in Isaiah, which we just read. He is the one like a, like, he is the one, he is the everlasting king descended from King David. Mary is realizing that all of this is fulfilled in Jesus. This is God's Messiah sent to save the world. And so she worships. She worships by giving her king a great gift. She draws close to him in a very personal and intimate way. And she gives him likely her most valuable possession, this ointment, this perfume. She serves him by washing his feet. Mary is doing what John is encouraging all of us to do in his gospel, which is to believe. Ernie has let us know, has told us that, you know, John's whole point in writing his gospel is to encourage us to believe in Jesus, whether for the first time or to believe again. And that is what Mary is doing in this moment. She's believing, and her actions are showing her belief. Point number one this morning is this. John is inviting us to do the same as Mary, to worship our king. We are in the midst of a season, in my opinion, the best season of the year, my favorite season of the year. But it is a season that is 
full of busyness. Amen? It is uh, between uh, the shopping and the parties, which are all fun, the traveling, the vacation, and all the stress that comes with those things. It is a season that threatens to overwhelm and keep us from truly worshiping Jesus. It can kind of make us pencil in worship for Sunday, Sundays and, and Christmas Eve. And John is lovingly inviting us to push back against that way. And instead consider how can we worship our king this Advent season? What gifts can we give, like Mary, to our king? We'll dive into that more in a moment. But as we're moving forth, think, what gifts, like Mary, can I bring for my king? One gift that we're about to get into is the setting aside of our sins. Point number two, John is inviting us to set aside our sins. While Mary is doing this incredible act of worship, there was one in the room who was not worshiping. Let us look. Verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So we've got Judas. Judas is there. And this is an interesting, interesting passage because we're kind of getting some insight into the person of Judas, the one who will betray Jesus. And at first glance, his concern seems like a fair question. 300 denarii is a lot of money. Well, maybe we should sell that and give all that money to the poor. That could help a lot of people in a lot of need. But John is quick to clarify, verse 6, that, that Judas said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Again, this is interesting. We get some insight into the dynamics of the, the 12 and into the person of Judas. And John makes sure we know that Judas's concerns are not genuine. He's not worshiping. He's being selfish. He's in charge of the money bag, ironically. Interesting, the guy, he, he's in charge of the money bag. Judas knows that if they were to sell this ointment, get 300 denarii to give to the poor, he would likely be the one carrying the bag that would take the money to where it needs to go, and he knows that he could take some for himself. John calls him a thief. He takes what is not his. If Judas were alive today and he worked at your office, he would be the one that would eat your food from the fridge, even if you put a note on it. <laughs> he would eat it. He would eat it, 100%. Uh, if he was a partner at Sojourn Church today, then he would be finding a way to sneak money from the offering. Okay, that is Judas. John wants us to know, one, Judas will be the one to portray Jesus. He says that. But more importantly for our time this morning, he wants us to know that Judas is greedy. He likes money. He wants us to know that Judas will betray Jesus because of his greed. And we know this because after this episode in Bethany, if you keep reading in John, you'll quickly see that Judas will go to the chief priests and agree to turn Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver, much less than 300 denarii. And there are theories, why does Jesus do this? Um, scholars speculate, some think that Judas really wanted Jesus as Messiah to like rise up and overthrow the Romans. That was an expectation for the Messiah. And so some think that Judas was, uh, as he heard Jesus talk more and more about his death, Jesus, Judas kind of said, well, if he's not going to overthrow the Romans, I'm just going to turn him in and make something from my time with him. Some thought, more optimistic, that Judas was trying to force Jesus' hand by betraying him, like put Jesus in a situation where he has to overthrow Rome or be killed. 
Still others reference passages like Luke 22.3, which says Satan entered into Judas, and Judas betrayed Jesus because he was under the influence of Satan. I submit to you that Judas's greed was the door that Satan used to enter him and lead him to betray Jesus. Satan didn't need to possess him or control him like some kind of puppet in order to make him betray Jesus. He just needed to capitalize on his greed. See, Judas had this underlying sin, and that sin kept him from worshiping like Mary. Mary's doing this beautiful thing. Matthew and Mark's accounts tell us that Jesus says she has done a beautiful thing, and Judas is there just thinking selfishly. And it's crazy when you think about it because both of them knew Jesus very well. Both of them had seen Jesus' love and witnessed his power and witnessed some of the signs. Yet their actions in this passage are so different. In church, it's telling us, John is inviting us to see that unchecked sin in your life is dangerous. It steals your worship away from God and puts it somewhere else. For Judas, the sin was money, but it can be any unchecked sin. And that's the second point. John is inviting us to set aside our sins. Well, what what does it look like to do that? Well, first it begins with examining our own lives and saying, are there unchecked sins in my life? Are there things I'm not addressing? Are there sinful habits that I've let become normal? And they can be small things, big things, examples. It could be lust. It could be maybe instead of going out of your way to serve your spouse, you've just kind of resigned to, eh, not going to do that. Maybe it's failing to spend time with God, or maybe it's an unforgiving heart. Whatever it is, this passage shows us that if we are not addressing underlying sins in our life, then our worship is being affected. It's being stolen. So the first thing we do, we examine our life. And I'm going to drill down on greed a little bit here because that's what Judas, that's where the text is taking us. I don't know about you, but when I grew up, um, the emphasis, the sin to beware of was lust. It's dangerous. Don't lust. Don't lust. Don't lust. I never once heard greed mentioned. (laughs) I don't think ever once as a teenager, maybe as a college student, but um, other sins like lust and hate are easier to spot. You can easily spot them in yourself and others can spot them in you. Greed, I think, is a little harder to spot, but I think we need to not assume that any of us are innocent. I don't need to assume that I'm innocent. So I have some questions we can ask ourselves to help us spot it in our lives. So I want to invite you to just reflect for a moment. Don't say anything out loud. I'm going to ask some questions. There's four of them. And the idea here is that if your answer to any of these questions is no, it might indicate greed. So question number one, is your gut impulse when someone asks you for money or time for kingdom ministry to find a way to give? Is it your gut impulse? Another question. Is there anything in your daily life you could go without in order to free up more money for generosity? Are you willing to forego or limit time spent on a favorite hobby in order to free yourself for service in your church or another ministry? Could you live with contentment on the same income you earned five years ago or ten years ago? Some questions to help you reflect and identify greed. We examine our lives, 
for greed and other sins, but then we work to root sins out of our life. We work to root, root greed out of our life. If we have greed in our life, how do we root it out? How do we push back against it? John Wesley, one of the founders of the Methodist movement, now the Methodist denomination, he gave a really well-known sermon called The Use of Money. And in this sermon, he outlined three rules for Christians that I think are golden. Number one, he said, earn all you can. Work is good. Earn all you can. Rest, Sabbath, yes, but earn all you can, he said. Work hard. But then number two, he said, save all you can. And by save, he meant more around live simpler. Live simply. Wesley, he started out as a student on a student salary of 28 pounds. And what he was kind of known for was each increase of pay throughout his life, he kept living on 28 pounds. So eventually his salary was double, triple, quadruple, and more. But he would just give that away. Earn all you can, save all you can, so that, number three, you can give all you can. Three rules regarding money for Christians. Earn, save, give all you can. How do we root greed out of our lives? We obey that third rule. We give all we can. We do what Jesus did. Jesus practiced contentment. Jesus was content with very little. We do the same. We try to practice that in our own life. Instead of acquiring more, what a, what a good season to practice this in. Like in this season that we're really driven to acquire more and more and more, what if we pushed back against that and said, you know what, I want to give more than receive this season and push back against any, any small hint of greed in my life. And rooting greed out of our lives is necessary for accepting John's third invitation, point number three, John is inviting us to care for those in need. Verse 7, last two verses of our passage. Jesus said, leave her alone, Judas, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So Jesus rebukes Judas. <laughs> I really like how he rebukes Judas. He tells her, shut up. Um, in both Matthew, he tells her, be quiet. In both Matthew and Mark's accounts, Jesus says that Mary has done a beautiful thing. So be quiet, Judas. Let her have this. Let her keep this memory for the day of my burial. Let her have this memory because later she's going to need it to bless her. And then verse 8 is very important for us, church, because we know what comes after Jesus' burial. We know that Jesus does go and die. He is buried. But then he rises from the grave in one glorious moment. And then in another glorious moment, he ascends into heaven. And so now he is on his throne. And so the implication of verse 8 is that now is the time for us as Christians to care for those in need. To care for the poor in our world. In Bible college, one of the classes I took was a preaching class. And big surprise, one of the assignments in preaching class was to prepare a sermon. And so we were given a text, and you prepared a 20-minute sermon, and you delivered it in front of your classmates, and your classmates would kind of give you feedback. And uh, the hardest part of the class the, was when you had to go and sit with the professor and watch the recording of you preaching. If you've ever had to watch yourself, it is hard. It's a good and necessary, but just awful thing. <laughs> um, it is. And so I went in, uh, uh, I went in, sat down with my professor, and you, know, you talk about all kinds of things. Was your sermon biblical? Did you do anything distracting? Did it have clear application? All these kinds of things. And one thing you talk about is posture. Did you make eye contact? Did you do anything distracting with your body? 
And to my horror, this was my first sermon in Bible college, to my horror, my professor pushed play, and I began to watch myself. And for the entire 20 minutes, I don't have, it was a music stand, so it's a little different than this. But for the entire 20 minutes, I was doing this, like, leaning up and down the whole time I was talking, 20 minutes long, doing this. And I just sat there with him, looking at it, going, oh. Um, that's why we go to Bible college. We weed all that stuff out. Um, the point was, and the point is for us this morning, posture matters. If we want the message of our life to be heard, then our posture matters. What we're doing with our body and our actions matters. Whether you're interviewing for a job, you're interacting with a client, or giving a presentation, posture matters. So we need to think about that in our lives. Are we in a posture of worship, of giving, of sacrificial giving, like giving up other things to give more? My professor wanted us to see that the message of our sermons could be missed if we were doing distracting things with our posture, like I was doing. And I think in a similar way, if our actions are not lining up with our belief, people can miss the message we're trying to get to the world. We want to have a posture of Mary, not Judas. We want to have a posture of worship, of giving, of generosity. So what, what might this posture look like? What does a posture of worshiping the king look like? We're going to move into some application here. Well, it could look like many different things. I would invite you to ask the Spirit and let the Spirit speak to you. Maybe it could look like singing. For some of us, life is not easy right now, and maybe the greatest act of worship, the greatest gift you can give your king is singing in faith, praising him even though life isn't, isn't great right now. Maybe, it could look, maybe, maybe a posture of worship might look like just trusting, because again, maybe life has beaten you up right now, and trusting is the greatest act of worship you can give Jesus right now, trusting that he is still good in the midst of suffering. A posture of worship could look like giving your God, giving God your focus and attention, taking time each day to pray, even though in the midst of this busy season, intentionally getting up early before the kids get up to pray and listen, to communicate and commune with God. It could look like turning away from a sin in your life, one of those things that came into your mind earlier. It could look like giving to and caring for the poor, those in need in your life. Maybe, and not just in a financial way, we can think about it this way. We can also make it our goal this Christmas to, to give to people who are poor in spirit. Maybe you have neighbors or family or friends who are lonely or who you know this is going to be a hard season for. How can you give to them? Can you invite them to your Christmas? Can you invite them into your traditions? Can you give them meals, cookies, food, gifts, whatever? Finally, a posture of worship could look like practicing contentment. Jesus was content with so little. Materially, he had so little, but he was so rich. We can root greed out of our lives this season by enjoying what we already have and whose we are in Christ, which is hard, but it's something we can do. So to conclude, it is the season of Advent, and so I did want to bring this into the Christmas story and so we're all looking forward to Christmas. We're anticipating, celebrating the birth of Jesus. Um, 
Quick show of hands. How many of you were in Christmas plays growing up? Nativity scenes, anything like that? Okay, cool. Any, anyone play Joseph out there? Anyone? No one? Okay, just me. All right, cool. All right. Um, I also played a sheep. Um, so... We love the Christmas story. We love all its characters. I remember when I was little, we had this set in our house, and I would always play with the animals and rearrange them, and my parents would get mad. Um, But there is one group of characters in the Christmas story whose presence, to me, seems a little odd. Not the angels, not the shepherds, not Mary and Joseph, of course, but the wise men. And I mean odd in a good way, kind of a perplexing, like, why are these guys here? Think about it. Jesus is born. Some time passes. We don't know how much time. Um, some think Jesus may have been as old as one, maybe even two, because he's called a child at this time in the story. Some time passes in these wise men, these who were basically astrologers from the east, the area of Persia, Babylon, that kind of area. These astrologers from the east show up. They're not Jewish. They're not worshipers of Yahweh. Um, they study the stars for divine activity, and they follow this star to Jesus. One, one guy I read called them pagan stargazers. That's basically who they are. I like that. And they've traveled for weeks. They travel for weeks to see Jesus. They follow this star. And Jesus in this story is described as a child. So whether he was a month, two years old, doesn't really matter. They come to this child, these wise men, and they present him with these amazing gifts. Not gifts for a toddler or for a baby. Like gold, frankincense, myrrh. Like these are kingly gifts. And they physically fall down and worship him. I don't know about you. I have a son who's two, Caleb. Many of you know him. You know, he, if, you try, if you try to talk to him, you know he has immense stranger danger. He clings to his mama. And the idea of some men like falling down and worshiping a two-year-old or a one-year-old, I look at that and I think, that's crazy. Like if you get that image in your head, like that would just never happen. So what were these wise men doing? What were they believing as they fell down and worshipped this child? They believed they were looking at a king. Did they know that Jesus was divine? Debatable. But they knew that they had found a king. And so they traveled to him. They fell down. They worshipped him. They gave him great gifts. Gifts fit for a king. Both Mary and the wise men knew. And they do so. This is very much like Mary. Excuse me. Both Mary and the wise men knew that Jesus was a king. And this king, anointed by Mary, would go on. He would die his death on the cross for our sins. He would be raised to life so that we can have eternal life. And then in another glorious moment, he would ascend into the heavens. And from His throne, where he is now, he proclaims that all of us who have believed are sons and daughters of the king. Church, we are sons and daughters of the king this morning. Our sin has been forgiven. We are innocent. We are guiltless. We are loved by the king who is on the throne of this universe. And as we experience this Advent season together, We're also, as Ernie said, looking forward to the second advent, that glorious day when Jesus will come down. And in that day, wise men and women from all nations, Israel and Gaza, U.S. and China, Russia and Ukraine, 
wise men and women from all nations will gather around the throne and worship him as one. What a day that will be. And until that day, we here at Sojourn Church will worship our king with our voices, with our love for our neighbors, with our care for the poor, and in so many other ways. Church, I have a simple invitation for you. Bring your gifts to your king this season, whatever they are. Small, big, whatever they are, bring your gifts. Take on a posture of worship. We're about to take communion together. This is an opportunity for you to reflect. Um, as you're, either as you're waiting to come up or as you're back in your seat and you're waiting for everyone to finish, I just want to invite you to reflect and, one, thank God for being the king that he is. Be, you know, we, uh, if you're serving communion, uh, if you're in the prayer team, you can go ahead and come forward. One of the things... What's really amazing about this is Jesus or Mary anoints Jesus' feet, but then just like a chapter later, Jesus will wash his disciples' feet. Our king is not a king who lords over us, not a dictator, not, a, not someone who's just waiting to condemn us. He's a king who has served us. He's died for us on the cross for our sins. And so... As you come forward and you receive the elements, the body, the bread, which represents the body broken for you, the juice, which represents the blood shed for you, reflect on who your king is. He is a king who has served you, who has declared you his. He is your protector, your father, the great king who's watching over you right now. Let us take this time and also reflect on how we can worship him this Christmas season. I want to invite you to go ahead and come forward. And as you come forward, if you're new to Sojourn, how we do this is you'll, you'll come forward up the middle aisle. You'll be served right here. And um, you'll take your elements. You'll take them. You'll go back to your seat around the exterior aisles. And if you need prayer, our prayer team is over here. If you need prayer for anything related to this sermon or not, um, they are here and they would love to pray for you. So I want to invite you to go ahead and come forward. I'm going to pray and then we'll do that. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much for the king you are. Father, thank you Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. For allowing your body to be broken and your blood shed on our behalf. It is by that and by that only that we are saved. Thank you, Lord for being the king that has proclaimed over us who have believed you are forgiven and you are mine and you will be with me in eternity. Father, I pray for us as we take this time to reflect, I pray that you would lead all of us, Lord, to reflect on how we can adopt a posture of worship, how we can prioritize that this season. Lord, help us in the midst of busyness and commitments and all of these different things to worship you this season because you are worthy of worship. God, we don't come to you and worship because we have to earn our place. Lord, you've declared us. We have a place with you. We're free to worship you. Father, help us do so. Pray over everyone in this room. I pray for those who are suffering, those who are lonely, those who are hurting, those who are struggling to trust. God, I pray that you'd be close to them this season. For those of us who are 
abundant in spirit or abundant in, in, in wealth this season. Lord, help us give more than receive. Help us do this, Lord. Give us opportunities to be a blessing to the world around us and have a posture of worship that just shines your light. In your name I pray, Lord. Amen. Sojourn Church, you can come and receive the elements now.